Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. Uh, we've got a treat for you tonight. New guest that's never been on the podcast before. Matter of fact, we just quizzed him before the show. He's never listened to the podcast before. So it's it's good to have a, a fresh approach tonight. But first, Jason, welcome. How's things been in Utah? Um, it's been good. It's been good. We've been having actually some really good spring weather this year for a change. And you know some actual spring temperatures and some good some good water which we need it's a little, some rain and some more snow in the mountains um we've been in a pretty good pattern which is awesome for all those that know that we're in a pretty bad drought out west here and we i've actually been able to get out and shoot a little bit found a fox den to go play a little bit with here red foxes um and then went out and spent a day with the horses out in the west desert so that's been good i went out this morning with a 93 year old photographer who had never he's he's been in wyoming his whole life he's never seen a sharp-tailed grouse leck so i was able to take him up up the mountain this morning and let him see his first sharp tails the issue was it was 19 degrees when we got up there and for whatever reason there was a little bit of an inversion and the top of the mountain we were just completely fogged in so we had zero light and, you know, the grouse, though, I the record that I've had on that lek in particular has been 25 birds. And this morning there was 28, uh, 26 males and two females on the lek. And that's fairly late. And they were, with those cold temperatures, they were super active. But it was a, it was a great little outing. At least he got to see them and he got to see them, you know, kind of at peak activity as well due to the temperatures so that was a that was a treat be able to take somebody out that has that kind of time on the planet and let them see something new for the first time so our guest tonight is coming to us from oklahoma city joseph saunders joseph welcome to the podcast glad to be here appreciate it guys how are things going in in okc uh it's peak migration season so we're seeing a lot of uh Perching birds, songbirds, like passing through. Well, we've seen a lot of everything. I just haven't had made time, been able to make time to make it to the uh, the lakes yet to see kind of what shorebirds and uh, other waterfowl are around. But been seeing lots of uh, warblers and other songbirds passing through the trees around. We were talking a little bit before we started tonight. You're seeing pretty much all your all your spring species have already been back. For the most part, all of our spring species are back. Um, See, even the uh, the Mississippi kites, which are usually one of the latest ones to actually arrive, I uh, observed those, I think, last Friday for the first time uh, this year. So Mississippi kites are back, and once usually once they're back, it's, it's pretty much settled. So, Joseph, we want to get into it, introduce you to the, the audience. So, first of all, let's just start digging into it a little bit. How did you get started with wildlife photography and and you're an avid birder, so how did you get started with that as well? I would barely call myself an avid birder. I've really only been birding since about 2020. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So what really got me into it, ironically, uh, it's um, what got me into photography uh, and all that was actually uh, 
my my keeping of domestic reptiles. So I keep a lot of uh, snakes and other things. I breed snakes as well. And a friend of mine gave me some advice. He was like, I wanted because I told him I wanted to take better photos of uh, like the the babies of the snakes that I was hatching. He was like, you need a decent macro lens. So I was like, okay, cool. And didn't know anything. I had like an old Canon T5i, and so I picked up the 100 millimeter, not knowing anything about it. And then I realized that with that 100 millimeter, I could take like photos of insects, get like basically a cricket and fool in the frame. And then I just went berserk after that. Um, just opened up a whole new world. Um, I started doing a lot more field herping, uh, and uh, yeah, that really it just kind of it just really just took off from there. Oddly enough. I've always loved wildlife. Uh, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, uh, seeing green anoles everywhere. Every like bush, tree that you look on, you stare at it long enough, you're gonna see green anole. When you know in the in the warmer months, um, you know I was always reading about reptiles and you know watching as much David Attenborough growing up as I could. Um, but I really just didn't start taking photos until about eight years ago or so. Well, looking at your macro work, it certainly wouldn't appear that you've only been doing it that long. You've got some great stuff. I especially the, and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher species, but the the jumping spiders and almost wolf spider looking shots that you have in your portfolio on uh, Instagram, they're phenomenal. You get some incredible detail. Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean I can't even fully take credit. There's another um, there's another macro photographer here in Oklahoma. His name is uh, Thomas Shahan. Uh, he's been featured in National Geographic and he's um, done quite a bit of work. He's, he's been featured uh, in exhibition at the local uh, science museum, at the local university, University of Oklahoma, where I graduated. Um, and he's really the one that kind of is, is sort of responsible for really getting me into uh, macro photography. He let me know what was possible because of the work that he was already doing. You know, so, you know, the first couple of photos that I got after getting that macro lens, of course, I mean, they were terrible because I had no idea what I was doing. But, you know, I had a vision of what was actually possible with macro photography because of the work that he did. So, What got you interested in herping in that from the beginning? I mean, was it just like a childhood thing or did it? Oh, okay. Yeah, for me, like, it, it's always been reptiles for me. That's always been my number one. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, online, it, it, it doesn't always necessarily come across, but I use a wheelchair. Um, I have since birth. Um, and like for me, like snakes have always just been, sort of been a little bit symbolic for me as far as their their means of mobility. You know, without the use of the legs, they do so much. You know, they they survive some of the harshest conditions like thrown at you like in the entire on the entire planet. Um, so taking a little bit of inspiration from the wild uh, from them, uh, I've kind of just kind of applied that to myself as far as you know what I'm willing to what I'm willing to do and. Uh, what I'm not willing to, what I'm not willing to accept, what I'm, yeah, what I'm not willing to accept as far as not doing what I could be doing. Yeah, that's awesome. Your, your portfolio is pretty inspiring. And that's what I was going to ask. The Reels on Wheels is your Instagram handle. Is that, is that where that came from? Yeah, it, it's intentional. Uh, same thing with uh, my business name, um, Paraherpetologica. Um, herpetology being the, um, the, Scientific study of reptiles and amphibians. A lot of it's it's kind of it's a double entendre like para like paraplegic, but para also has another def definition to um, to live alongside something or to be side by side to something. So it kind of it represents the name represents you know my life uh, you know alongside reptiles, reptiles and amphibians. 
wild it's really become wildlife for the you know it, it's blossomed from that it it started there and it's really um to coin uh, a term a friend of mine uses i've become more of a pan naturalist really than a herper you know like whatever's out there in the wild i want to see it i, I want to see what's going on it's funny how that happens yeah i was just gonna say i think that's the case for all of us whether it's you start with big game and then all of a sudden you're photographing birds or you're photographing reptiles in the desert you know it it doesn't yep. matter where you start you you fall in love with the natural world i think that's that's a, a common progression sorry i cut you off joseph what were you going to say now, I was going to say for those of us that are lucky enough, I do know some people that are still like really hard headed and they don't want to break out of their niche. And it's just like, what are you waiting on? You're like, you're selling yourself short. Like, you know, yeah, absolutely. Like, when you when you appreciate wildlife simply for what it is, you, know, you don't really have bad days out in the field. You know, you can get skunked easily if you're out herping and you're only if you're targeting snakes or something like that. But, you know, if you are doing some of that and you're having a bad day, you're not finding anything, you just look up, you'll find some birds, look down, you'll find some arthropods. It's hard to have a bad, bad day when you're interested in anything. Yeah, it's funny you said that. I actually was out on this fox den recently and I was just sitting there minding my business waiting for the pups to pop their heads out and watching mama come by and check on them and stuff. And, and I just was enjoying the evening. It was a really beautiful day. And all of a sudden I just started noticing all these birds around me. And there was a couple birds that I didn't recognize. You know, I'm not a big birder um, as far as knowing the species and that, but they've always intrigued me. Anyways, a gal would come walking by and ask me what I was doing, and I explained it to her. And then she started to tell me about all the birds that she'd seen. And she was a birder and had a pair of binos on her neck. And was so we sat there and chatted for a little bit and just talked about that very thing, about how it's just, you know, you just get to a point where it's just nice to be out there and just kind of watch and witness and see what's going on. And when you really kind of just zone and, pay attention to the little details of everything that's going on around you. It's amazing what you can watch and witness, you know? So that's a big part of it for sure. That's, it's cool. What kind of snakes do you raise then? Um, I predominantly breed ball pythons. Um, that's what I've had uh, really any kind of success with actually breeding. Um, but I keep a lot more than that. I've, I, I couldn't even tell you the number of species off the top of my head. It's probably between like 15 and 20 different species that I have. Um, my partner, she keeps uh, dart frogs as well and some tree frogs. Uh, I think she's got about six species of five or six species of dart frogs and three species of tree frogs. Um, yeah, it's just it's that's that's kind of always been the hobby. Like I got my first snake when I was eleven, you know, and that's just something that I've always that that that's just been a constant in my life, and it's really from that that really what was kind of the pathway that led into to wildlife ultimately you know I, I i took issue to some of the other guys that were in the commercial side of um herpetoculture you know knowing what was around them in their backyard and everything else i was like wait a minute it's like i don't like this about myself like it's not it wasn't okay for me to not know what i was actually finding or that i could be seeing that was not far away so i changed that yeah that's what i was gonna ask how long from when you got your first uh, snake, and I don't know what species was it. Um, let's see, my first snake was uh, an albino California king snake. Okay, and I think corn snakes, king snakes are pretty common. And then, yeah. how long was it from when you got that that first animal to when you started to kind of look around and explore on your own? 
Um, I mean, honestly, even before then, like when I when I was a kid, um, my mom's ex-husband, you know, he he liked to go camping and fishing and all those kinds of things. So he introduced me to that uh, from a pretty young age. Um, and where I grew up in San Antonio, uh, our house, um, I grew up on. I, I'm an Air Force brat, so I grew up in the Air Force and uh, base that I was raised on. Um, our house basically backed up to like a pasture and some woods on the opposite side of the fence. You know, so we would see like javelina, uh, peccary, all like all the time, uh, just kind of creeping up toward the fence line. Like I said, there were there were always uh, anoles around anywhere. You would see uh, at the time Texas rat snakes, which are now Western rat snakes, uh, Western diamondbacks. And, you know, it, it was always around. We uh, uh, used to always see gray foxes. Gray foxes were always just roaming through the neighborhood in the middle of the night. Um, Texas toads. I think you know Texas toads are gulf toads. I'm not sure about the species because I was really young and I. Wasn't quite as astute about you know knowing the species, but I mean always toes around at night and you know, I, I I've always been taking notice. Um, it's a different thing to put it into practice, you know, to actually develop the knowledge and to be intentional about it. But you know the interest was always there. Now is that what you got your degree in as well? No, actually I got my uh, degree in uh, sociology with an emphasis on inequality. There you go, and that leads you. So if you look at your Instagram page. Uh, you are involved or have been involved in the past with Black Birders Week, which you said was not just a, a local event. Right. Go ahead and explain that for, for everyone that's listening. Well, Black Birders Week, um, it was uh, initially sparked by the uh, discrimination uh, experienced by Christian Cooper in Central Park in NYC in, uh, I think it was June of 2020, uh, where he's harassed, uh, basically accused of um basically had the cops called on him because he was birding in Central Park because he told a woman who didn't have her dog leashed that she should leash her dog. So she called the cops on him being a black male and thinking that, you know, she could actually spin it whichever way she wanted. And well, so we, we decided as a group, and it was just a chat group at the time of other black naturalists, um, that we would kind of basically let the world know that Christian Cooper wasn't the only one that, you know, that we're actually out here and there's more of us and, uh, from there, it's uh, grown into kind of a, just a social media campaign where you spend a week uh, developing different, uh, discussing different topics about being black, being uh, being black and a naturalist, being in the outdoors, with an emphasis obviously uh, on birding as well, which has led into numerous other um, black and X weeks with other uh, naturalist disciplines as well, from like marine sciences, different biologies, ecology, um, botany, so on and so forth. It's been a really uh, gratifying experience. It's something that I never imagined that I would honestly see in my lifetime. For for me, growing up, I was the only um, black person that I knew that was even really involved in it, at least as far as my local area um, or anywhere that I went to. And then, you know, luckily, online has kind of afforded us a little more, uh, a broader view to be able to connect with other people. And I mean, I'll be 39 this coming Saturday, so... Um, yeah, I'm, I, like I said, I'm, I'm just really glad to actually see it kind of taking place because I've spent most of my life uh, looking for other people who look like me and have the same interests and not enough. Still aren't enough of us and I want to see uh, more of us because the more of us th that are involved in it, uh, then the safer we all will be and hopefully you can avoid you know, any future incidents like what, with what Christian Cooper went through and what I've even been through myself and many others. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And we... You know, we've had uh, some ladies on the podcast and they've said the same thing where, you know, they've had issues in the field and it's it's unfortunate. 
And I think, you know, my personal feeling is the more people, period, we can get out into the natural world, the more we can reconnect with it and avoid a lot of the problems that we're having, you know, as far as the planet's concerned and populations are concerned with wildlife. But in addition, we can we can resolve a lot of other issues as well. And I applaud what you guys are doing for sure. Appreciate that. Now you primarily, or what what you post primarily is the macro photography now, and um, sorry. well, you've you've got a diverse portfolio, but the ones that really catch my eye, I should say, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll rephrase that. The ones that catch my eye is your your macro work. And you said that initially, you know, you weren't getting the results you wanted. How did you change your process then without giving away the uh, the big secrets? Uh, there really aren't any big <laughs> secrets. Um, I mean, I can go through like the basics. Uh, um, you know, the, the biggest, the most important thing when it comes to macro photography is, uh, is quality diffused flash, quality diffused light. Um, because you're working with such a uh, with such a small distance, you're really close to your subjects. It doesn't allow for a lot of light to actually pour into illuminate the subjects. You know, it's not like shooting birds or um, like larger mammals to where you know you're up at either really early in the morning or you're you know you're pursuing the golden hour to actually get the light to reflect just so and to being able to exploit the natural light. You have to create your own. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the biggest thing with macro. Uh, it's kind of and. And then also, really, it's it's knowing the subjects, but that's true of anything that you're shooting when it comes to wildlife. You know, the more you know your subject, the better you're able to anticipate its actions. The better you're able to know when to press that shutter just at the right time when they do whatever it is that you want them or that you're hoping that they may be they may do. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's incredible. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Ryan, I mean to cut you off. I'm just. <laughs> I'm just, I'm scrolling through more. Um, it's just incredible. You've got some really, really neat stuff. I, I love the macro stuff. I'm not, I've never gotten into macro. Of course, I'm sure at some point I will, because it's just the next, you know, something new to try and something new to get into. And there's no end in what you can photograph, which is why I love it so much. Um, but man, you've got some, that's some really neat. So I might just have to reach out to you and ask you for some tips. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's Pretty I mean amazing. the biggest change obviously is the closer you are to your subject the more the focal plane changes, so you're not shooting yeah. at f two eight being that close, which Never. is <laughs> which is why you need more light. But are you are you in the habit then of of focus stacking or are you more of a one shot try to get it in one shot type of photographer? Depends on the subject. Um, you know, anything that is flying, you know, you're only, you you got one shot. Yeah, that's it. Right. Um, if it if it's a really cooperative subject, uh, I definitely will rely on focus stacking to kind of increase that depth of field. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a fan of focus stacking. Um, I also predominantly only shoot live animals, mm -hmm. um, so a lot of my focus stacks aren't very deep. They're usually on average probably about six photos um, at at most. Yeah. Every once in a while, I get a really cooperative um, specimen, or if it's like a really cold day and they're just not moving very much, uh, I can get more. Um, but yeah, most stacks are usually about between probably three and six photos. I think the closest, so like the the Canon 100 to 400, minimal focus distance is about, I think it's pretty close to a foot, maybe 16 inches. When you're dealing with macro, 
just kind of explain to people how how what the distance is that you're dealing with or how close you so get into these subjects yeah it's it's inches at most or at the very least rather like so like if i was using like this gift card is i don't know it was something that was on my desk like you know if this is the the subject and turn that around like if this is the subject i'm probably shooting from about this far away from the the arthropod sometimes even closer depending on what the working distance of the lens is which you know of course they vary depending on the maker um mm -hmm. and just even different lenses within the same maker uh, so what's your what's your go-to uh macro setup is i mean i'm sure it varies and depends i'm that's kind of a cut it's you, you haven't listened to the show but it's a common <laughs> joke we have on the show that it you know anybody asks a question and it's always it depends <laughs> but <laughs> um so my go-to lenses uh, is Laowa or Venus Venus Optics. Um, they cater to uh, macro photographers. They have like the probably the widest arsenal of macro lenses. Um, they're a little more challenging because a lot of them are manual. They don't have um, all of the, the electronic attachments, so you have to adjust the aperture and the focal plane with the the lens barrel. Um, and then I recently just picked up um, a Beetle diffuser from uh, Baron HB, uh, who's on various social media platforms. He creates like this pretty intricate diffuser that fits over your speed light better than what I could ever build myself. Um, and it creates some really, really nice light. Um, I was using just uh, like foam actually before that, just like regular square cut uh, out pieces of foam and I would uh, fold one piece and put that over like the the covering of the um, the speed light, and then I would cut um, a hole out the, um, just a little bit smaller than the actual lens to fit that over the lens. So there would be two essential areas of diffused light directly from the um, the flash itself, and then again at the end of the lens barrel. Um, mm -hmm. And there, I will use both of them going forward. I'll show you uh, one thing real quick. So this is the, uh, the Beetle diffuser from Baron HB. So you see the center of this flashes out of here and this is just all, there's like reflective light sources on the inside of this. So the light bounces around internally and then it comes out on the side and it, it also is kind of concave. So you can put your hand kind of deep in here. So it actually lights from left, right and over kind of over top of your subject. So it does a really great nice job. Thing. Um, however, um, the lens, you know, I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> I, I didn't know we were going to ask <laughs> you to do a lecture, so that's fine. The struggle with this is just put this on my camera. So the lens sits here. So it, it's, it's pretty recessed, pretty deep in there, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem is if there's anything that is up here that is in between you and your subjects, you're not going to get close to it. You know, that's kind of the downside to this setup as opposed to um, what my other setup in which I have uh, a piece of foam over top here mm -hmm. and then another piece of foam that fits over this, like a fan basically, and sits in front. I'm able to get a lot closer to the subject with that, with that situation because it doesn't, it's not as intricate as that one. Admittedly, the... The quality of the diffused light is better with the larger one, but with the foam, it is still definitely serviceable, and it'll allow you to get into tighter spots. Now, did you Very come up with the foam yourself, or is that something that you saw uh, somebody I, else doing? 
So people have been using like all kinds of different things. Uh, the phone specifically was another local uh, macro photographer. Mm -hmm. um, I had picked up from him. I had tried using, um, tried creating something that was similar to the the more intricate one that I showed you, the Beetle Diffuser. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just don't have a knack for building stuff. I didn't build stuff growing up. I, I was just <laughs> never that guy. I took stuff apart and put it back together. I have no engineering like qualities about me whatsoever. Hmm. Um, but I use like like clear uh, sheets of like plastic, whatever, mm -hmm. and kind of fix that just so it just didn't fit very tight, tight, and it fell apart after about a couple of months, and so I just kind of ditched it. And the foam, it's easy to come by, it's easy to replicate, it's easily to replace if you damage it, to tear it, or anything like that at all. Um, Thomas Shahan, he's used like tracing paper and like the sheets or the um, the the paper covers, mm -hmm. like your your eight and a half by eleven paper covers, like just basically putting just tracing paper in that, then taking like a wire hanger, fixing that around it, and then basically like you know fixing that somehow to the lens and the speed light, and then flashes through that. So basically, when I teach my students is if light can pass through it, you can use it as a diffusing element. People have used like milk cartons. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a friend who uses old cereal boxes and trash bags. You know, so mm. if light passes mm. through it, it can be used as a diffuser. But uh, again, there are differences in quality um, depending on how that goes. So sure, it's up to how innovative you are and I guess to some degree how good your engineering skills are. Which, <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah. yeah, I'm with you on that. That's the cool part though, right, is that you can kind of just be creative and, and I mean, try different types of diffusers and what kind of effects it gives you and, you know, it could you could come up with something that would create a completely different effect than you're normally seeing. Yeah, you could. I mean, cool. If you're so inclined, I just, I'd rather support other micro photographers and just buy the ones that they make. So that's time I have oh, to sure, spend sure, trying sure. to figure Absolutely. it out and going More through More time in the field. The trial and error of it. Yeah. And there's something to be said for that. I like sure. the, the design <laughs> of that. Basically, you're putting, what, getting 270 degrees of, of light, pretty much? Yeah, just about. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that's a a lot of trial and error just to see exactly what you do need. I know some macro photographers use like a, a twin light on the front of the lens. So yeah. you're at least getting both sides there as well. Is that something that you've ever yep. tried or have you tried to stick with the filters? I have tried. Um, I've actually, I've got one around here somewhere in one of my mini boxes of little various types of accessories that I don't use. Um, it's just too cumbersome to carry into the field. Yeah. Uh, you, basically, because it's a twin light, you need two different or at least one larger uh, flash diffusion elements, and it just ends up being a lot to carry around. I just I found both of these options quite a bit easier, mm -hmm. I mean, especially like as, um, using a wheelchair. I have only my hands to use to mobilize myself to actually hold the camera and everything. So for me, it's you know that there isn't it's a dance between minimalism and quality, right? and kind of where, where my cutoff is with that. Being nature and wildlife photographers, we all end up off the grid at some point. And we've just picked up a new sponsor here at Wildland Exposed. It's Zolio, and they offer a satellite texting device. It's a reasonable cost, and the service is pretty reasonable, and you can buy different plans. The three plans that they offer is they have a $20 plan that basically gives you 25 messages through the course of a month. 
They also have a medium range plan, which is 250 messages for $35 a month. And lastly, they have the unlimited plan, which is what I use. It's $50 and unlimited messages. Ron, Jason, and myself have been using it for about a month. Actually, I've been using it for almost a year now, and it's been very helpful because I end up shooting in places off the grid a lot. And it's just nice to be able to contact family and just let them know, hey, I'm okay. Shoot's going well. Having a good time. See you soon. One of the best things about this device is it has an SOS feature. So if you get into trouble and you are off the grid, you can still reach help. It's super simple to use. You basically just use an app on your phone which connects to the Zolio device. And at that point, it's really just like text messaging, only you're doing it through the Zolio app. It's two-way, so you can send a message out and somebody can send a message back. To learn more about the Zolio device, go to our website, click on the sponsors link, which is at wildandexposed.com. At the top, you'll see sponsors. Click on that. You will see a link that goes right to the Zolio website to learn more. And then you can also check out the partner deals that we have. We have an affiliate program with them, which we will get a percentage of every sale of every device. So you can buy that right from that link on that page. And then also when you set up service on the device, they will waive the $20 activation fee if you use a code when you set up your device. And that code is wild exposed, W-I-L-D-E-X-P-O-S-E-D. -E so when you set up your device, you enter that code, the $20 activation fee is waived and you'll be on your way. One thing that I was going to ask, what are the, first of all, how far do you get away from home? Are you traveling quite a bit for the, the herping to try um, to get different I mean, I've been all over or... the state. I've been all over the state. I haven't really traveled much out of the state yet, but that's, that's coming. Um, I haven't visited West Texas. I haven't heard Arizona, and those are like two big places, you know, for any right. any reptile enthusiast to go. Uh, Florida as well, um, but I mean, I've been to all the corners of the state. Um, not herping, I shouldn't say that. I've been I've driven up to Colorado, so I have been in the northwest part of the state, but I haven't been there strictly as a wildlife photographer mm -hmm. yet. But that'll probably, that'll change soon. Where is uh Where is the dream destination? Have you ever thought of traveling to like Southeast Asia? And... <laughs> you know, the, the biggest, my biggest setback with that is honestly, I mean, I need to know, I need to be able to develop a plan to where I have access to things using a chair. Uh, you know, that's something that a lot of people when right. they do travel internationally don't have to navigate. And I, I haven't looked at in it too deep yet, um, but it's definitely something that I'm going to have to get into the weeds for to know, you know, if I do go to these places, I need to know ahead of time, you know, so I can actually knock out my plans and, you know, target what it is that I want to target. Um, I've heard Costa Rica is a really good spot. That's that's one that I've heard from people that have been before that say it does have the infrastructure to be able to, you know, some of the actual trails and paths you can actually use with a chair and you can see like eyelash vipers just hanging out on the side from the tree, from, you know, from the trails and um, the, the biodiversity of, uh, the arthropods is pretty impressive in Costa Rica as well. So there'll probably be plenty for me to do there, but yeah, I definitely, I, I would love to go all over the place. Uh, it's just a matter of the logistics. If you know anybody yeah. that knows that, that has all that information that I can talk to, I mean, send them my way or, you know, see if we can get in touch with me because I, I would love to know. Coast, Costa Rica, I do have a guy that, that lives there and he's, 
I've been in contact with him for quite a while. That's a destination that I really, it's probably two, three kind of in a tie with polar bears on my list. I really want to go to Costa Rica. Eyelash vipers and for whatever reason, sloths intrigue me. And I think they're just very photogenic animals, to be yeah. honest. And it's, you know, they they have a lot of interesting biological aspects to their uh, to their life, you know, the, from the algae that grows on them because they move so slow and to, you know, just where they live and the defense mechanisms that they have in place. And then, you know, most people go to Costa Rica for the birding opportunities, but the eyelash viper and sloth are my, like, one and two down there. I could spend a lot of time looking for those. Maybe Kawadi if I had good luck with the other two. Yeah, but I mean, you can find the Kawadis in, um, am, I th- am I even thinking of it? Kawadis are quite a, are we? Yeah, yeah they're like, real common. Like Quadi, yeah, Quadi, they're, Quadi, not, right? they're not uncommon. Yeah, like you can find yeah. those in like Arizona, yep. South, uh, West, Southwest Texas. and. Hmm. Yep, yep, absolutely. Speaking with like, there, there, yeah. weren't there recently uh, sighting in the like, last two years of a Jaguar in Arizona, I think? Like there were, there was yeah somebody caught it on a trail camera i haven't heard much about it since then but there were definitely a lot of people from the university of arizona that were out trying to get a location on it find out where it was but it's you know it's good to see species expanding that have been gone for a long time from the area but i think of jaguars more as a river bottom animal and you have like two options in Arizona, right? If you're looking at a sustained river bottom or sustained riparian areas. What are some of the other species that interest you or intrigue you? Um, I mean, like I said, there's almost like nothing that I wouldn't take an interest in. I, I, you know, when I was young before, I kind of found like these sort of um, habitual niches, uh, if you will. Like I've, I've always loved big cats. Um, once upon a time I didn't want to, I wanted to work with big cats in some kind of capacity, any kind of capacity that I could, um, which never came to fruition, but I, I do love big cats. Um, I don't know, like almost, I don't have a whole lot when it comes to mammals, to be honest. I mean, there, there's a few, I mean, obviously big cats being uh, a large group of them. Um, but like. Like you mentioned, like bears. Bears don't really get me all that excited. Uh, I'm kind of one. I feel like I'm one of the odd ones. Like there's another guy here in Oklahoma. Um, his name is Dave McGowan. He's a really good photographer. Birds a lot. He goes up to Alaska, I think, like annually to photograph um, the grizzlies up there. And mm. you know, it, I, I, if someone was like, "Hey, we're going. Do you want to come?" I'm like, "Sure," you know. But it's not something that I'm going to, that I would be like making uh, a big priority for i don't think um saving your pennies to go up there yeah, yeah. um papua new guinea papua new guinea australia um of course i mean australia like deadliest place and i, I would still go i, w- I would definitely go Cause, i mean the <laughs> the herb diversity there is just insane um you know, sadly, I don't know nearly enough about um, the continent of Africa to say, you know, where I want to go specifically to target, like, what species. But um, mm-hmm. as far as what I know to be on the continent, that definitely, I just, 
I would need to study a little bit to kind of narrow it down to which countries. Yeah, I had some of those uh, sidewinder-esque ass species in, in the north of Africa are pretty intriguing to me as well. Like any of the pit vipers and and uh, the ass, they they intrigue me quite a bit. The cobras don't really get my goat, and I'm a little bit scared of the mambas because they've they've got quite the reach. So I don't I don't know that I want to mess with them. <laughs> Fastest snake on earth. Yeah, that's. Like you just like think about like the coach whip is like is the fastest uh, snake in North America, mm-hmm. and if you've ever happened across one and actually seen them bolt like when they mean it and they're trying to get away, it's it's impressive. And just to think that there is a snake that's faster and infinitely more deadly in terms of their venom yeah, potency yeah. is yeah. I, I respect the the black mamba a lot. I would absolutely love to see one in the wild, but I respect them a lot. Yeah, yeah, it would definitely be probably. a long lens shot. Huh. <laughs> uh, I'd be so tempted and be like, can I can I pull this off with the wide angle? <laughs> it would probably be a very bad decision, but I, it, I, mean, I mean, I've done it with like all of the venomous snakes in Oklahoma, you know, without an issue. But you know, the little the the vipers. In the U.S., are are no black mamba. No, no. Uh, we yeah. I mean, there are only a, a handful that have a potent or lethal bite. So there's a there's a lot of snakes that obviously would do damage in North America, but they're most of them are treatable. There's some in Africa that if you're very far away from the right. hospital, you're not. I mean that's just going to be it. Hope you got the right. hope you got the shot for the world to remember right, you by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I thought about it I was like that might be like my last trip. And it's like I'm kind of getting at that point to where like I can't go out in the field anymore. But the, like after the, your story with the, that gentleman in his 90s though, it's like you know how long does this really continue? But I don't know. Maybe when I'm like maybe my 60s or something like that. Cause for, for, I think for me would be reasonable just because of you know with the mobility limitations and all that but like yeah that might be like one of my last trips like bucket list okay i'm gonna go to africa and i'm just gonna risk it all like if i get the shot great and you know just have like a a plan in place to where i can just like bag my sd card and ship it back to the u.s like i got the shot but i'm not coming home (laughs) i'm not gonna accompany it (laughs) yeah Uh... there's so much in africa i mean you could spend a lifetime Uh... over there and not not touch the biodiversity on that continent. Right. It's like one of the only things that makes me sad about not being immortal is just not having an opportunity to actually see all of the biodiversity that exists in the world. Mm-hmm. Like I would spend several lifetimes yeah. just trying to observe it all in some form or fashion. Absolutely. Isn't the black mamba kind of notoriously um, aggressive too? I mean, or am I not thinking right? Being a, a herper first, I, I never use the term aggressive when it comes to them because I mean, they get pretty decently sized. They're, they're a pretty big snake, um, at least as far as length is concerned. But when you consider their weight, you know, usually weighing under, say, probably under ten pounds, I can say pretty confidently, it's not a very big animal, mm-hmm. really. You know. Uh, 
so when you happen upon something like that, they're, they're more scared of you. And so I always use it when it comes to reptiles, I always say defensive more so than aggressive. But yes, very defensive, um, very much willing to display their defensive mindset. And <clears throat> if you cross that threshold, they will let you know that you cross that threshold mm-hmm. real fast. And they're and they're quick. That's actually good. I'm glad you you touched on that. That's a, a the difference between aggressive and defensive. That's a I like that. Thanks for teaching All me something. Time. Speaking of yeah, they they commonly oh, go ahead. They they can commonly. I, I had to fact check myself real quick because um, they commonly grow <laughs> up to three meters, so nine to ten feet in length. But I mean, they are. Probably, I mean, I've I've seen them, you know, in zoos. I had a friend actually that had a couple of them some years ago, and I mean, they weren't even as big around as my wrist. So they're not a very heavy-bodied animal. They are slender. They are fast. They can get decently long and very potent venom. So speaking of Sorry, uh, nerd out. Speaking of teaching us something, <laughs> you also do some some classes, and you kind of touched on. You know the your students with uh, with the macro. Do you do any other kind of workshops or or field craft type training? Um, I haven't done anything in the field um, directly. I I was I taught a class a few times on macro photography on macro photography with Atlas Obscura. Um, I do teach. Uh, I I offer one on one education through Patreon mm-hmm. uh, with my third tier. So if somebody you know if they're interested in macro photography and they just kind of they're looking for mentorship, that's one way that people can kind of reach out without having to wait until I'm in um, or I'm offering a course. Um, but you know as the opportunities come, I try to take advantage of them at least uh, when I'm not you know busy in my in the peak of my own field seasons, which is spring and fall, uh, like a lot of like a lot of people. I usually take a little bit of a break in summer. I might teach a class um, if someone's reached out. And I try to teach most of them uh, in the winter. Uh, that way everybody's kind of got all the resources and the tools that they need, hopefully by spring, to really kind of get their best foot out there and start taking some, some good photography, improving upon their photography skills. So how does your, how does your uh, Patreon system, what would that look like for somebody that was, say, in – you know, the Northeast that wanted to work with you? You know, um, well, as far as as far as that specific feature, that is uh, my third tier, um, my highest tier, um, uh, which is 15 bucks. And that's uh, essentially basically um, for that. You can basically just it's it's an open door kind of a head like, hey, can you actually help me with this? And I'll take a look at somebody's portfolio and I'll make an assessment of that portfolio, kind of see where their where their strengths and weaknesses are. Make an assessment and see how I can actually help them with what with the skills that I've got um, with photography to kind of bridge that gap to get them from wherever they are to you know where it is that they're actually hoping to be as a photographer. Um, and you know, macro is kind of what people have dubbed me kind of a professional on. It's kind of I, it's probably what I've practiced the most just because of its because of its availability. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's probably fair to say that I am objectively better just because I've done so much more of it. Than other types of photography, um, I squirreled there for a second. Um, but anyway, um, but yeah, if it's macro specific, that's what I would actually help out. If they want to help, and macro also includes reptiles and amphibians as well. You know, it isn't all just the smallest, um, the smallest animals in the world, or just arthropods. Um, 
a lot of good uh, wide angle macro happens when you're doing uh, herps. Um, but anyway, um, they're interested in that. We've said across the time, I will shoot them either um, a link, we can have phone conversations, I will basically do whatever it is to kind of bridge that gap uh, through um, just being available to them one-on-one -on -one, um, and trying to get them to where they to, to, to where they want to be through either a Zoom call or whatever medium works best for them. That's awesome. We, we've talked about doing something like that with the podcast, but we haven't uh, haven't messed with Patreon yet, and that's but that's a good solid offering. You know, anytime you have a Patreon account or somebody supports you through Patreon, you're supposed to offer something, and I think that for the the value is uh, is a great. That's a gift actually <laughs> to get your expertise. Yeah, you know? the the tickets to classes is is they're they're not cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, admittedly, and I don't I don't have full control of the prices. It depends on who's hosting or who's reached out to me to actually host a course like Atlas Obscura, who did before. Um, you know, so they set some of the or at least part of the price. I will set a price, and they usually add something on top of that. So Atlas Obscura, you know, they make some money on it too, as opposed to you know if you only have like. If you feel like you only need like a few kind of sessions or whatever the case is, you know, 15 bucks a month uh, with Patreon and you may end up getting your sessions within like, you know, a few payments of that and have all that you need to be able to carry on and do what you need to do as a photographer. Because, you know, a lot of it is up to the photographer, really, right? You know, we can only you can only give any photographer so many tools. Once you've given them the tools, it's up to them to use Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, it depends yeah, a lot on motivation. Sure. But, yeah, I guess my... My comment was, I think that's probably the best deal in macro photography learning, <laughs> you know, a, a $15 a month one-on-one. -on -one. That's uh, very generous. How many students do you get? Honestly, nobody's taking advantage of it with Patreon. Really? Not one person yet. They just pay the... Well, yeah, the I've, I've got... I, so I would, um, yeah, like, you know, uh, the classes have gone well. Um and that, a lot of that comes from um, just the audience that uh, I've gained online and also through uh, Atlas Obscura as their audience as well, people that uh, look for the specific offerings that they, that, that they do offer, uh, which really, really wide. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, nobody's hit me up when it comes to Patreon specifically of, hey, I want you to teach me on this. And it's there. It's there if anybody wants to learn it. Um, and then, it's, of course, there's perks and other um, lower levels for it as well. Mm. So. Yeah, I'm su I'm surprised by that. We had another guest, Scott Keys, and he offers the same thing. And I mean, if you look at your macro photography, you look at his, you know, kind of water level bird images. I think a person could learn a ton. And people not taking advantage of those opportunities that fifteen dollars a month is nothing. All you have to do is skip a couple cups of coffee, or maybe one. You know, depending on what kind of coffee you drink, yeah. and come out with a knowledge base that you can use for the rest of your life. So now, Atlas Atlas Obscura is that a, a local organization or is that no? That's like a huge international. international okay. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to look that one up. They, they teach all kinds of things. It, it's not photography specific. Like they have like classes on like wine tasting or cooking and all kinds of stuff and they contacted me for uh, for macro photography mm -hmm. so I did a few classes with them 
Um, yeah, it was a good experience. Um, I'm interested next to actually see if I can possibly pull that off on my own, actually, because then I can actually control the price. Sure. And then there's no additional price, and you know I can actually offer it at a lower level for, for my students, which I imagine they'd appreciate. Yeah. I think so. But they're... Man, I just looked up Scott Keys. Yeah. And if I've got the right guy... You do. Wow. Yeah, he's got some crazy... Yeah. Some yeah, crazy right bird <laughs> photography. Yeah. Yeah. His, his light. You no, know, I got like, I got all this like camo like last fall because I was like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to start taking photos of waterfowl at water level. Like, I've seen some of these other people, like, you know, stuff like this work and never really did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. I mean, I could, I could actually throw it on and like, you know, sit behind a tree or close to a tree, whatever, and just try to see if I could get close to some of these. Um, the the migrating birds now too, but I don't know. Like, I th there there's something about like the way that you kind of first went into it, and mm -hmm. for me with it being um, herps and arthropods, it's hard for me to sit still. I can't just like sit there and just kind of wait for the animals to come to me. Like, I I'm used to going to them, you know, going to them and actually like if it's a snake or something like right. that, catching it, actually catching it, posing it, what you need to do with it. It's not all like um, you know, in C2 or anything like that. Yeah, you know, it's actually kind of, you know, get in a situation like that, like a blind or whatever, you're, you're committed, you know, you've got to just wait it out. And sometimes you'll sit in one of those blinds for a long time before you if, really get, yeah. if if you ever get what you're kind of looking for in that session, you know, so. I sold. Yeah. Yeah, see, I would probably have about an hour at tops of sitting in a blind. If I didn't see them, like, forget this. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to go find on, something. Moving on, finding a subject. Yeah, I totally <laughs> sold out this year with sage grouse mm -hmm. and just wanted one shot in particular. And that's all I went for. And I had went out with other people and they were, you know, on the other side of the light and had a great time and got a lot more shots than I did. But I finally did get close to the one. It's It's been cold enough that they're they're continuing now so i think i might go give it another shot now that things are dried up from the spring snowstorms i've got a few of those bucket shots that i have in mind but we'll, we'll see if they actually pan out my lifetime i'm gonna have to develop a a better sense of discipline in some in some of that area like there's one that i want to get i want the kind of it's almost a cliche shot now um but of a an osprey like diving like right as it's actually breaking the water i mm -hmm. want that shot we, we only get osprey here for about three to four weeks out of the year because they just pass through Oklahoma. Um, and I think I just missed their window as a matter of really? fact. But, um, so I don't even know if they're still here. But that, that's one of them. But I probably should be practicing on some of the, the ducks that come through in the winter so we could get my... Your panning skills. <laughs> it, is, it is definitely a skill. Mm -hmm. that, that is no joke. Yeah, you've got to find them early and then just... Yeah, it really is lock on although with these yep. new cameras are you are you shooting mirrorless now yeah yep. with these new cameras it's almost like cheating because all you have to do is find them once and the camera locks on right like i i feel it makes me feel like a an advanced noob <laughs> if that it absolutely kind of does yeah. it's like uh, like you know i didn't go through the struggles that like a lot of you guys that went through that uh been shooting birds before you know the, the electronic viewfinders and the tracking systems that exist in sony and canon now i guess nikon's finally catching up too mm -hmm. with their z9 yeah it's the 
Yeah, definitely. But yeah, this I'm not going to complain and I'm not going to give it back. I've got it now. <laughs> nope. Nope. I got it now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Animal eye, yeah. autofocus. Yeah. Yes, we'll please. Take, we'll take it all day long. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'll keep yeah. my 90-something percent keep rate. So what are some <laughs> other things that you have going on throughout the year? You said spring and fall, so you're catching both migration periods for the most part. No, it's really it's the most active time for wildlife. Period. Just with the yeah, um, at least as far as what what I've been looking for. I mean, even like reptiles. So like with like snakes, amphibians, or they're obviously they're done for the year after like kind of spring and uh, late spring or early summer, they're finished and back underground. But like snakes, especially, they've already had their clutches. There's babies on the grounds, and you're actually finding babies now in the fall. Because um, right now all the females are gravid or they're still mm-hmm. breeding, and so you know they spent summer through the incubation period and hatching. Um, a lot of arthropods, like you'll have your overwintering arthropods, they will have like their last clutches or broods in the fall. Um, of course, you have uh, you know bird migration and everything else. Like everything is just mm-hmm. busy uh, in the fall, um, no matter what it is that you're targeting. Like that's that's been my struggle lately for like the last couple of years is like you know what do I right. pick? It's like do I go birding today? Do I go herping today? Do I go looking for? Do I focus on macro today? It's just like, I'm just gonna bring everything <laughs> with me and then it's like I end up doing nothing because I'm like overwhelmed because I have like my telephoto lens, my macro, mm-hmm. and my wide angle. I'm like I don't know what to do. I'm just gonna like stare off in the distance through my binoculars. I don't know. There's a couple shots of you taking a nap in the car. I think when you on the ponds. I think there was one that yeah there was one that was that I took uh, I think it was like a selfie that I took in the car. Um, yeah, yeah. I was just hanging out at the lake and everybody needs a nap. I don't even remember what was behind that one. Yeah. So what else? So you've got the uh, the Blackbirders Week, but you said you guys are expanding. I'd like to get out what opportunities are out there for folks and give them a, a place where they can find a location where they can go to see some of these events and how they can take part. So really, you know, honestly, because I wasn't as, uh, because I wasn't involved with planning of it for 2022, I'm a little bit out of the loop with it, honestly, really, um, thus far, it, it really only exists as like an online community. Um, we operate in all of our interactions are in a discord um, and we're all over the the country, uh, in the U.S. for the most part, but I mean, myself here, uh, Texas, uh, South Carolina, Florida, um, Georgia. Uh, so that, that's, that's really the, the crux of it um, as far as what we have going. In the future, what we're hoping to be able to do is actually offer more um, in-person programs through either bird walks, um, just various kinds of outdoors events um, that we mm-hmm. would be hosting, but that's that's still to come. None none of us were honestly uh, th- th- it wasn't intentional that it actually would blow up like this. Like it, it was really just you know we saw one of our guys getting harassed and we're like, hey, right, that's not cool. So check the rest of us out, and then it just became right yeah. all of this, and now we're a five hundred one c three, and we don't. You know, we we've had to teach ourselves all of these various skills to kind of uh, to get this going. Um, so, 
it takes oh, time, you know. Sure. Nothing was ever like built in usually in a short amount of time. Like you know, we've talked to a lot of other 501c3s, and you know, a lot of them take many, many years before they're actually really kind of going where they where they really need to get where they really need to be. So, so we'll put links in the show notes. But where can where can people find information mm-hmm. on Blackbirders Week or myself well, or? all of the above? We'll so, we'll Black- cover. Let's cover you first because you've got you've got your. Okay. Instagram, and then obviously you have a, a paywall where people can get in touch with you through mm-hmm. Patreon. So go ahead and share where everybody can get a hold of you at. So the simplest way to reach me, and as far as what I'm most active on, it is uh, Instagram at Reels on Wheels, R E E L S uh, on Wheels. Like kind of like it sounds like photos on wheels because I use a wheelchair because I'm a <laughs> dork like that. Um, yeah, so if, if you go to my bio on uh, my Instagram, it has a link to all my links, and that includes the Patreon, my Twitter page, uh, the link to my website, because uh, I do offer photo prints online, um, uh, puzzles, I do calendars, I've been doing calendars for the last two years, and I'm going to keep that, try to keep that one going, and maybe some other things in the future, who knows. Um, that's also the, how you would reach me if you uh, if somebody wants me to teach a class. Uh, say, you know, they're a part of any sort of a nature organization or a nature center somewhere. Um, you know, I, I've taught in those kinds of environments and those uh, circumstances as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it's all that's the easiest way. The central points, Reels on Reels, Instagram, link in bio, and you can find everything that you need from that point. If you want me to teach macro, if you just want to actually go hang out at the, nice. like, if you're local or something and you want to go birding or... Um, you want to buy prints, or um, you can also get to uh, Black AF and STEM. Black AF and STEM is the organization, the 501c3 that I'm part of, um, and they're most active actually on Twitter. Um, and it's um, it's it was mnemonic as it says, Black AF I N S T E M, um, science, technology, engineering, math. Uh, so yeah, and if you follow Black AF and STEM on Twitter, that'll kind of keep you appraised of everything that's going on and how that all develops. Reels on Wheels Instagram is easiest way to follow me. Awesome. So Joseph, we always like to ask our guests, what's what's your most, well, your most favorite, do that double positive there. What's your favorite outdoor experience you've ever had? Could be related to photography, may not be. What's your favorite outdoor experience? You know, I've done a lot of herping, obviously. Um, most of the herping that I do is road cruising, just cruising back roads, country roads. Um, and there is a really common snake throughout the U.S., the rough green snake. I don't know if um, – I'm not honestly not sure of you guys' uh, range. Cause I think like Utah and Wyoming is where you guys are at. Yep. Um, we have smooth green snakes, but no rough, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um Super common. All of my friends had had one, and I've just been like sitting here without a rough green snake forever. And I'm like, I don't understand why I can't find this super common snake. Like you just see them like cruising along, along like on the tree in your front yard, kind of common. Um, and I went years without one. And like one night, I went to. This is after I was uh, already getting involved in macro photography of arthropods. And so I go out one night, and I'm in the nearby park where I've been doing a lot of birding again lately, and. Um, I just got this kind of shining my flashlight and uh, I got the reflection off of scales and I was like what is that and I took a closer look and there were three 
baby rough green snakes just sitting in the top of the tall grass uh, in this neighborhood, like right by my park. That was that's one of my favorites because it's like I finally got this lifer and it was in the park right by my house and I wasn't even looking for them. I was looking for insects and I found three at the same time. I was like, cool, right. I'll take it. Um, ah, that's cool. <laughs> the other one, oddly enough, um, was just this past winter. We went to the uh, Cheyenne Bottoms uh, wetlands in Kansas, um, and I had never seen that many snow and Ross's geese or any of any one species any, any, in any kind of fashion in my life. Um, there was something like 20,000 snow and Ross's geese um, in the middle of this one lake, and um, a bald eagle had flown by and spooked them, and so they all just came up off the water all at once. And that was my first time ever seeing anything of that magnitude, and I was just blown away. Like, how loud they were from that far away. You just you can hear them, you can just see it, just like just a huge wave of birds just coming up off of the water. Uh, I've actually got some video of it somewhere on a card that I haven't manipulated yet because I was trying to see if I can actually get the wind sound out of it but mm -hmm. I know how to edit photos I don't know what I'm doing with video yet yeah join the club <laughs> you and me both so you need to you need to nah, yeah it is you need right, to experience the Sandhill Crane migration though in in Nebraska at some point it's very accessible They've got, most people have uh, wooden blinds that are built like on the riverbank. And so you just go inside the blind and you can photograph them when they come back into the roost. But just, you were talking about the volume of the geese. Sandhill crane migration is like nothing I've ever experienced before. I mean, you think about the loudest stadium you can imagine and it, it's it's louder. You can't hear yourself talk to the person next to you. It's unreal. And, the, you know, they get upwards of about 600,000 um, sandhill. 600,000? Yeah, sandhill cranes. And that's Ooh. that's in that portion of the, the North Platte River. But then also the other advantage to being up there at that time is, you know, a lot of the reintroduction of hooping cranes was done by putting captive eggs in with with sandhill crane nests. So the sandhills will end up raising the the hooping crane babies, and so they'll travel with them. And that was what you know they started doing early on. So you'll you'll see a, a hooping crane every once in a while, and there's only about 600 on the planet. And last fall, when they came back or headed back south, there was a, a group of 12 all together that were that were in one location, and photographers were just having a field day. They were very accessible and very tolerant and see one of the rarest birds on the planet or in North America anyway, you know, aside mm. from maybe the, the condor, uh, it's just a great opportunity, but that's something that I think all of us need to experience as we were talking about earlier, you know, getting people out into nature and experiencing these great migrations and things like that. I think it's just, it's an opportunity to connect on a level that, we're not going to connect otherwise. Yeah. That, that is, that is, that's crazy numbers. Like I thought 20,000 was a lot and you're talking hundreds of thousands of cranes. We, we do get, um, the sandhill cranes here in Oklahoma mm -hmm. up at, um, 
the Salt Plains um, Wildlife Preserve. Um, about an hour, hour and a half north of here. I, I have seen them, but I've only seen them flying overhead. Mm-hmm. Pretty decent numbers. Um, we do get occasional whooping cranes coming through. Um, not many, um, but you know, there's sightings. You know, through like Ebert or whatever the case is. I mm-hmm. haven't gotten a chance to see them yet, but one, one of these years I'll probably get them. Yeah. But Nebraska, well, that's that's something I'll, I'll be keeping in keeping in mind. Yeah. So you want to look at like the end of February to mid March is kind of okay. peak range when they start showing up toward the end of February and then mid-March they'll have peak numbers, but it won't be long because once they get a weather window, they disperse. So, But it's it's definitely worth the trip for sure. Now, I was thinking about you in San Antonio. It's not too far from, you know, you, what, a couple-hour drive out to the coast and the hooping cranes actually nest on some islands out east of houston or- uh galveston like a galveston yeah. area yeah yeah i i actually just missed um i i was i wasn't well so i w- didn't get a chance to go um some friends and i we had had a planned trip uh a trip planned for the like the last six months to galveston mm-hmm. um i think just this past weekend um ended up not being able to go but they saw a bunch of stuff um, and hopefully we're hoping to be able to make this an annual trip to where basically we go out in probably like the last, uh, week of April or whatever, just as a lot of those birds are coming across the Gulf because they come across the Gulf and then they're just dog tired. Um, mm-hmm. and they're making landfall and trying to fuel up. And, um, so it's a really good time to actually see a lot of those birds once they actually come across the Gulf. Hmm. Yeah. That's something I want to do at some point, but there's so much that I want to do. I have a, a really long list as we all do. But yeah, Costa Rica's right up there. So maybe we'll get together on that trip. But I will put you together with, uh, when we get done today, I'll give you his contact information. And he's a great source of information. And he doesn't do tours, but he's more than willing to let you know, you know, what kind of arrangements you'd need to make and that kind of thing and, and where the best places would be to go. But Cool. Yeah, I'm definitely looking for like the honestly the non-tour kind of um, experience anyway mm-hmm. because you know a lot of times the tours they are they're not catered to someone who uses a chair so right. um, you know I, I don't want to hold anybody else back and so I just kind of want to be able to develop my own plan and be able to execute it. Perfect. Jason, you have anything else? No, I don't, man. It's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better, Joseph, and. Uh, I think people are crazy if they don't take some time to A, go and check out your work, and B, take advantage of that Patreon (laughs) bargain that nobody's taken advantage of yet. So, yeah, please go take some time to check out his work and go support support Joseph. Yeah, the support is definitely appreciated, especially, I mean, you guys know if you're you're chasing wildlife and with gas prices are what they are right now, it, it, it is hitting different this year. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I, I had a lot of plans that I had to kind of like change around and kind of readdress like, okay, how am I going to actually make this happen? So, Right. Yeah, I'm trying to buy airline tickets before that catches up as well. It's already starting to climb a bit, but. Yeah, I would say my partner, she's in Colorado right now, um, meeting her, her new nephew. And uh, just in the time that she started planning this, the prices for the plane tickets had gone up. So they're definitely on the rise. Mm-hmm. Well, Joseph, as Jason said, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks for joining us and and sharing 
you know, your experiences on the, or to the Wild and Exposed audience. And uh, we'll have your contact information in the show notes also, so people can check out the website and find the links there. And uh, check out his images at Reels on Wheels on Instagram. You won't be disappointed. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way.